look, men, you decided what you thought God said was your sphere, but you also happened to decide for God what our sphere was, and you don't get to do that. Moreover, we just want to talk about, what is that in the Declaration of Independence? Our inalienable rights. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And welcome to episode seven of my podcast. The title of this episode is The Codification of Women's Rights, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the Seneca Falls Convention. Now, up to this point, we've looked at the foundations of misogyny and of patriarchy with the Greeks and the Christians. But specifically, we also looked at how American women's movement is completely tied in to this new form of government that was created technically in 1789 when the Constitution was ratified. But we think of 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, because that is in many ways a philosophical statement about how the founders and people at the time understood the relationship between those in government and the governed. And this is a theme throughout American women's history and is up until this very point. We look to the Constitution and to different statutes, in other words, laws, to say, okay, what rights do women have as citizens? And unfortunately, in 200 plus years, we are in many respects still attempting to have recognized the reality that we are full and equal citizens, that our gender and our sex does not determine what level of citizenship we get, or it shouldn't, but it does. And nothing illustrates that better than what has been happening right now with the leaked Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. I might at a future point discuss it more fully. I think I, I want to and I should because I know a lot about this. I've been studying it for decades, quite frankly. But what I see when I read that draft opinion was an understanding on the part, certainly of the author and of the majority who agrees with him, that women are not full citizens in terms of their rights, that our rights are limited in some very profound ways. And it, instead of it getting better, it's getting worse. I've been really struggling the last few weeks with what has been going on. And I, I see myself, I go back and I see myself at 13 years old. And when I was 13, I kind of had this intellectual awakening. All of a sudden, I was starting to get it. And remember now that we only had TV. We didn't have the access to information other than TV and newspapers and magazines. So our access to information was much more limited than it is today. But one thing I did was that I saved up my babysitting money for a t-shirt that I had seen at the back of a magazine. Yes, this is the way we used to have to order t-shirts. You see a cool t-shirt in the back of your favorite magazine and you had to cut out the ad, send in the money and wait forever to get your t-shirt. And the t-shirt I had ordered was women belong in the house, dot, 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 
and the Senate. Because in the 70s, we were finally beginning to see more and more women elected to the U.S. Congress. And we were starting to see an expansion of rights for women and for African Americans. I mean, there's no question that the 70s really saw both the laws and Supreme Court decisions interpreting the Constitution that expanded the understanding of what an individual's rights are vis-a-vis the government. But because women have a uterus, and that uterus is capable of becoming impregnated, it means that all of the words in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are conditional for us. And it blows me away when I go back and look at this material that I've been familiar with for so many decades now, and I'm trying to spread the word of this is the history of women in America. Now you can understand where the material that is being put out now is coming from. It has a long history. It didn't just spring out of nowhere. So with regard to the Seneca Falls Convention, what you will see is a very clear understanding on the part of the participants, the organizers, and the author of the Declaration of Sentiments, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Cady Stanton, is an understanding that if this is our philosophy of government and our Constitution has a Bill of Rights that enumerate what the government cannot do to you and makes clear what rights are left to citizens, how it is that women are not seen as equal citizens, and they're not. And that is what the convention is going to be about. Now, we saw going back to the beginning of the American Republic, right at the beginning when they were drafting the Declaration of Independence, Abigail Adams wrote to her husband and said, damn it, husband, you better remember the ladies because we don't want to live under the old system. We agree with you that this new system of government is a great idea, but you can't leave us out of it. And of course, what is this new system of government? It isn't that a government gets its right to rule over you from God or from some other supernatural force. The ability of a government to impose laws comes from the fact that the people's political sovereignty has been conditionally surrendered to a government. And what the condition is, is that the government has to rule in their interests. And of course, the Declaration of Independence makes clear that there are certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What do those things mean? Well, if you look at the laws about women, go, there is no life, there is no liberty, and there is no pursuit of happiness because you are not free. You aren't even alive in the sense that legally, once you are married, you become part of your husband. I explained what the term, the term femme couvert means, which is covered. The woman is covered by the man. And so we often refer to laws that limit women's rights as coveture laws. And they existed well into the 20th century. Last episode, I introduced the fabulous Grimke sisters. The, this pair of sisters who were from the South had lived and experienced slavery firsthand in the sense that they saw it and they understood what was happening to the enslaved persons. 
and how their involvement in abolition ultimately became an argument about women's ability to participate in public life. The two sisters said, essentially, hey, there is no bigger issue right now than abolition. There is no bigger issue than the continued enslavement of human beings and the horrors that is going along with it. What kind of a human being, and in their case, a Christian, would I be if I sit back and do nothing? I wouldn't be a very good one. So they became involved and Angelina Grimke gave many speeches to huge crowds. Her sister Sarah Grimke wrote at length about women and the law. And yet the reaction was, oh, no, 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 this is bad. If you become involved in political life, you've sullied what makes you a woman, that perfect thing that the creator gave you, your ability to have children and love and take care of children and a husband. Well, you're sullying those by your involvement in politics. So the Grimke sisters wrote great responses to that attitude. And what we start to see is a continued attempt uh, by men in both America and Western Europe uh, particularly when it came to the abolition movements, to sort of freeze women out. And this is where the kind of germ seed of the Seneca Falls Convention comes into being. In 1840, there was a World Anti-Slavery Convention in London, and delegations from many different countries showed up. And among the delegation were a number of American women, one woman named Lucretia Mott, some of you may have heard of her. She's a very famous 19th century feminist uh, and a Quaker. And she was accompanied by the very young wife of an abolitionist leader. And this wife's name was Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Now, what happened at this anti-slavery convention? Well, it didn't go well. A lot of the American leaders started objecting to the fact that only male delegates would be seated in the convention and that the women had to sit behind a curtain to observe in a gallery. So Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, yeah, no, we're not doing this. And so they started to hang out together and they walked around London and they talked about how much work women have been doing in the abolition movement. And yet their voices are simply muted because they are women, simply because they are women. Now, Lucretia Mott was a very well-regarded figure in the American Northeast and in abolitionist politics. She was known kind of as a quiet presence, though. She did speak and she made plenty of speeches, but Elizabeth Cady Stanton will be far more fiery. Lucretia Mott has that Quaker demeanor that the Grimke sisters did, which is and, and Susan B. Anthony had it too, where they outwardly appear calm and their anger is channeled through their intellect. Now, Sarah Grimke, I would say, kind of spills over a little bit into the passion of an Elizabeth Cady Stanton, where she, she gets, you can feel her anger when you're reading it, which is why I love these women, that their anger is so palpable and so justified and it resonates so much when you read it. 
So they walked around, and during this time, Elizabeth Cady Stanton learned a lot from Lucretia Mott. And one of the things she learned, she wrote down later. And this is a quote from Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She said, I learned from Lucretia Mott when I first heard from her lips that I had the same God-given right to think for myself that Luther, Calvin, and Knox had, and the same right to be guided by my own convictions, I felt at once a newborn sense of self and freedom. So Luther, Calvin, very famous Reformation figures who the church in the 16th century did not want to hear from, and John Knox, who of course wrote extensively about why women are inferior and shouldn't have any political power, uh, you know, she's saying now, wow, here this incredible woman told me that I have that right that if I have convictions within me, I have the right to speak about them. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton, during this time, is going to start understanding that the great republic that she was a member of didn't treat her in a way that recognized her full citizenship. So... She she had gotten married in 1840 to a man named Henry B. Stanton, and Henry B. Stanton was a huge abolitionist leader and many times put his life in danger when there were mobs. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton, through them, really got to know the Grimke sisters, and they moved to Boston, and Elizabeth was hanging out with all these abolitionist leaders. But then things really changed. When a short while later, Elizabeth was moved to the small town of Seneca Falls. And I believe this was in the early to mid late to 1840s. Uh, Seneca Falls is a beautiful little town in the Finger Lakes region of New York. And when I visited it once, I was struck by how so many street names are after great Roman Republican citizens. I was like, even the word Seneca is one of those great old Romans. So it was really interesting. But one of the things that happened to Elizabeth Cady Stanton after they moved out of Boston to this small little town is that she started to live the life of a more typical housewife. There weren't lots of meetings at the house about abolition. They were fairly isolated. People had, they had to travel to go visit the Mots or other people. But one of the things she started to recognize is what the realities of life for women was. And it was really hard for her. And I'm going to read you this paragraph that will blow you away because it sounds like something that a housewife in the 1960s or the 1970s could have said, or even women who uh, have chosen to stay at home and be wives, but then at some point said, you know what, I'm ready to do other things now. And here's what she said. Well, first of all, her husband was away on business a lot. Okay. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton, contrary to the pictures, if you ever look up her pictures, they usually show her when she's a lot older. She was a petite woman. She loved life. So she was a voracious eater. She loved dancing. She had a great sense of humor. 
And she clearly enjoyed the perks of being married because she has seven children with her husband in, in fairly close succession. She did become rather large in her older years, which made it hard for her to move around. But she was a fully engaged person with the world. And so what she started to, to realize was, wow, I'm in this house and you can go to her house now. And I try to imagine it with like four boys running around the house because she has this growing family. And at first she has a lot of boys and she was doing an incredible amount of work. Even though she had a servant, middle-class white people often had one or two paid servants. She still did a lot of cooking, baking, she washed, she sewed, and she had to care for each baby. And one of the things that happened was she had already been involved in the abolition movement for several years and been involved in going to Albany to help lobby on behalf of new laws for married women. And her work came to fruition when a married women's property bill was finally passed in New York in 18, early in 1848. And you know, what they're, it was very modest, but it's the idea that she's involved and she's intellectually stimulated. And so here's what she said when she realizes, okay, I've got all these kids, I've got this house, but my brain is going crazy. And I'm looking around at my society and there is so much that I need to talk about. So here's what she said. I now fully understand the practical difficulties most women had to contend with in the isolated household and the impossibility of woman's best development if in contact the chief part of her life with servants and children. Emerson, that's Ralph Waldo Emerson, says, a healthy discontent is the first step to progress. The general discontent I felt with women's portion as wife, mother, housekeeper, physician, and spiritual guide, the chaotic condition into which everything fell without her constant supervision, and the wearied, anxious look of the majority of women impressed me with the strong feeling that some active measures should be taken to remedy the wrongs of society in general and of women in particular." My experiences at the World Anti-Slavery Convention, all I had read of the legal status of women and the oppression I saw everywhere, together swept across my soul, intensified now by many personal experiences. It seemed as if all the elements had conspired to impel me to some onward step. I could not see what to do or where to begin. My only thought was a public meeting for protest and discussion. And that is where the idea for the Women's Rights Convention of Seneca Falls began. And so Elizabeth Cady Stanton will go and when she is visiting Lucretia Mott and her sister and other Quakers, one day she said, I poured out that day the torrent of my long accumulating discontent with such vehemence and indignation that I stirred myself as well as the rest of the party to do and dare anything. They were sitting around a mahogany table that is now in the Smithsonian and these five women came to the decision to call a convention 
it, we would call it a meeting, and they wrote an announcement in the Seneca County Courier. Okay. Their announcement said, hey, there's this women's rights convention to discuss the social, civil, and religious rights of women that will be held in the Wesleyan Chapel, Seneca Falls, New York, Wednesday and Thursday, the 19th and 20th of July. The first day is exclusively for women, and on the second day, the whole public, uh, ladies and gentlemen, are invited to attend. Okay, but let's go back to what she said about the housewife and about how she felt. Look, every woman will tell you they love their kids to pieces, but they'll also tell you that they drive you crazy sometimes. I can't imagine having several small children running around all the time and with all the other duties that she was responsible for. Yeah, she realized, how can I be an activist and fulfill the obligations of wife and mother that, that my society has set out for me? And when I look around, what I'm seeing is that there are tremendous wrongs that are being imposed on women and that something had to be done. And she really followed Emerson's quote of a healthy discontent is the first step to progress. I would go a little farther. I mean, healthy discontent is good, but if you've been subject to the misogyny and patriarchy of our society all your life, and every woman is to one degree or another. Some women have to deal with it on a much more coarse level, but we all do because we don't live in a society that recognizes women as totally equal human beings in terms of rights. It's not about being the same. The anti-feminists love to say that, oh, you just want women and men to be the same. You want women to have penises. No, we want women and men to be treated the same in the eyes of the law and under the constitution. And those are two realities that do not exist yet. Is it better than it was during Elizabeth Cady Stanton's day? Of course. But it still is an existence for women in America that is fraught with impositions of governmental authority that men are not subject to and impositions of patriarchal hostility, particularly in the workplace that men don't deal with. Okay, so she drafted this notice and she put it in the newspaper. <laughs> I always wonder, the 19th and 20th of July in upstate New York isn't the coolest time of year, <laughs> but people went. I mean, people really showed up. And so Elizabeth had to get ready and say, okay, what are we going to do? Well, they came up with this idea of having a declaration of some kind, similar to the Declaration of Independence. And they called it the Declaration of Sentiments. And they recognized that the Declaration of Independence was a great blueprint because it will model how, in a very clear way, the limitations that are placed on women. So here's the opening of the Declaration of Sentiments. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of man to assume among the people of the earth a position different from that they have hitherto occupied, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men 
and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man toward woman, having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And then the Declaration of Sentiments goes on and lists an entire uh, series of facts, factual statements about what women can and cannot do. And you can pull up the Declaration of Sentiments anywhere and what the women are going to do is to make clear that the rights that men have should be the same for them. Okay. So woman is man's equal and intended to be so by the creator. Well, you know, right there, they're challenging the whole religious understanding that women were created as some sort of inferior being. I mean, they're both men and women are both human. They're part of the human race. And Sarah Grimke, Angelina Grimke said it, Mary Wollstonecraft said it, many of the 19th century feminists said it. Why would God create humans and make it so that one half of those humans will never be able to do or participate in the world the way the other half has? That didn't make a lot of sense. They also talked about that they have the right to be educated, that they have the right to go to school, that they have the right to claim for themselves a place in society that is not dictated by man's understanding that women are inferior, because they don't agree with that. So the Declaration of Sentiments will give this huge list of grievances. What's really interesting is that the first list of grievances is he has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. Now, this was a huge bone of contention at the Seneca Falls Convention. A lot of people, including Lucretia Mott, said, don't put it in there. That's too controversial. But it was so important to Elizabeth Cady Stanton and to some other women, because how will they ever be able to make their voices heard if they're not able to vote? Okay, he has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she has no voice. Well, remember everybody, no taxation without representation. Man has withheld from her rights, which are given to the most ignorant and degraded men, both natives and foreigners. So the Seneca Falls Convention listed these grievances, just like the colonists listed their grievances to King George III. Okay, so he denies her the vote. He doesn't let her have a voice in the laws in which she is held. And this issue of withholding of her rights that are given to the most ignorant and degraded men. One of the things Elizabeth Cady Stanton was disgusted with is how, and she talks about it in the speech that I'm going to reference in a minute that she gave at Seneca Falls, is that she considered voting to be this sacred duty of citizenship. 
And she would wrote about and talked about how men would go to the polls drunk and it was like a big game. And here she is being denied her right to vote, her right to have a voice in her government. And she will refer to them as apprentices and men that don't understand anything. In other words, anyone, as long as he had a penis, and I'm only talking about white men here, could vote. And the franchise keeps getting extended to more and more white men as American history unfolds. So that's what that one is about. She talks about that it's depriving women of their rights as citizen and no vote leaves her without representation. And then she becomes oppressed. He has made her, if married, in the eye of the law, civilly dead. He has taken from her all right in property, even to the wages she earns. He has made her morally an irresponsible being, as she can commit many crimes with impunity, provided they be done in the presence of the husband. In the covenant of marriage, she has to promise obedience, and the law gives him the right to deprive her of her liberty and to punish her. When it comes to divorce... Uh, a man can divorce his wife, take her money, take her kids, and put her wherever it is he wants her to. So they go on with all of these grievances, just as I said, the colonists did. And by making it clear that if this is what America is, if this is the philosophy of our law, of our government, how is it possible to have half of your population who are also human, and in this case, white. We are not talking about enslaved persons yet. That is going to come in the next episode and two when we get to the 14th and 15th Amendments. What she's talking about is how can you guys call yourselves enlightened and liberal and believers in freedom and liberty when you don't extend that to women? And the basis upon which they oppress women is their explanation of her uterus, that whether it's God or a creator or nature or science or pick any, any of those, your inability to function fully in society is a byproduct of the fact that you have a uterus that is in a lifelong journey of menstruation, pregnancy, lactation, and menopause. And all those interfere so much with your intellectual ability that you can't participate. Now, of course, Elizabeth Cady Stanton thought this was ridiculous because there are plenty of women who are smart and accomplished and that whole argument doesn't work. But one of the things you're going to see is, I'm going to talk about the responses to Seneca Falls, is that they don't address the issue on the merits. Once again, just like with Abigail Adams, but what's going to be happening now is that the responses to Seneca Falls are very much in keeping with the response to the Grimke sisters and are really quite, in many ways, they resonate today. But Elizabeth Cady Stanton gave this great speech prior to the voting on the Declaration of Sentiments in which she explains why it is that all of the different claims to superiority that men crow about, physical, intellectual, moral, she blows them all out of the water. And that as far as she's concerned, moral superiority 
if you look at human history, she basically thought feels that men hardly have conducted themselves in a way that reflects the morality, certainly, of Christianity. Intellectual superiority, she, of course, blows away with the fact that women aren't given an education. She even talks about physical inferiority and says that, look, if you let little boys run around, as she calls, romping, climbing, swimming, playing, whoop the ball, and and they're going to grow strong. And then she gives examples of women in other cultures who are very physical and tries to make the point that, look, women are strong and capable, but if you put them in corsets and stick them in uncomfortable clothing in which they basically barely can move around, they're not going to have a lot of chance to develop their physicality. She also talks about, essentially, they came together in Seneca Falls the same way that the founders did, to, quote, protest against a form of government existing without the scent of the governed, to declare our right to be free as man is free, to be represented in the government which we are taxed to support, to have such disgraceful laws as give man the power to chastise and imprison his wife, to take the wages she earns, the property she inherits, and in the case of separation, the children of her laws, laws which make her the mere dependent of his bounty. It is to protest such unjust laws that we are assembled today and to have them, if possible, forever erased from our statute books, deeming them a shame and a disgrace to a Christian republic in the 19th century. She is essentially saying you cannot claim one kind of liberty and not extend that notion of liberty to everyone else. Every time I read her, I see Mary Wollstonecraft. I read the Grimke sisters. I read other great feminists like Fanny Wright and Margaret Fuller and some of these other great women of the 19th century that I would love to spend time talking about. She also then explains that, look, you guys, one of your big complaints is this. If women are allowed to run around and be involved in public, then here's the problem. They're not going to be able to be wives and mothers. And she basically flatly says that that is not true. That in fact, by continuing to oppress women, you're not going to have a harmonious household. By continuing to degrade women, by making them not even citizens, much less second-class citizens, how can you expect to have harmony between man and wife and between uh, mother and child, parents and children? You can't. You can't. So she ends by saying, look, I don't expect this to be easy. I don't expect you guys to throw flowers in a red carpet arrival and say, yeah, we were a bunch of idiots. Because the reality is, is that men did not want women to change their position in society. And that is made very clear by the responses in different newspapers and pamphlets about Seneca Falls. And these responses that I'm going to refer to now uh, are response to both Seneca Falls and to a convention that was held in Rochester shortly after it. So, but it was the same thing in terms of what the focus was. So these responses are all about women involved in these meetings and what it means. In one newspaper, 
basically affirming that women are wrong about this. One editor says, it requires no argument to prove that this is all wrong. Every true-hearted female will instantly feel that this is unwomanly and that to be practically carried out, the males must change their position in society to the same extent in an opposite direction in order to enable them to discharge an equal share of the domestic duties, which now appertain to females and which must be neglected to a great extent if women are allowed to exercise all the, quote, rights that are claimed by the convention holders. And so he goes on to talk about how society would have to be remodeled. And 6,000 years of unbroken patriarchal history has to be undone. And I, I wrote in the margins, so what? I mean, the whole point is that if society exists and it exists such that half of that society is oppressed and has no legal recourse, no political recourse, no recourse whatsoever, that maybe you need to change that society. And essentially, they're arguing that the way that things have been, religious, moral, and social relations of the sexes, this is the way it is and should not be changed. And it's also impractical, the editor says, and uncalled for and unnecessary, because if the changes of Seneca Falls were effected, it would set the world by the ears, make confusion worse confounded, demoralize and degrade from their high sphere and noble destiny, women of all respectable and useful classes, and prove a monstrous injury to all mankind. It would be productive of no positive good that would not be outweighed tenfold by positive evil." It would alter the relations of females without bettering their conditions. Oh, well, oh, that's really interesting. First, I want to point out a couple of words. True-hearted females, unwomanly, monstrous, their high sphere and noble destiny. Again, your noble destiny is to have children and stay at home and take care of a household and be obedient to your husband and go to church and do your chores and have no rights. And so if you think that's a problem, then somehow you are unwomanly, not a true hearted female and what is it? Monstrous. And that comes right out of the 16th century literature against women who were in positions of power like Queens, like Queen Elizabeth the first. She was a monster because she was upending the natural order. And that is according to someone Elizabeth Cady Stanton mentioned, John Knox. So that's where they go. That's where they always go. Oh, you know, you have this high, noble calling. Then, oh, women, you're so much better than us. You don't want to be involved in politics. This is a petticoat movement. And, you know, this is something that these kinds of women aren't real women. And, you know, they said the same thing about women in the 1960s and 1970s. What did they call us? Women libbers, man haters. Again, and it was mostly the media. The media picks up on this and it's all over the newspapers and magazines. And in the 60s and 70s, it's all over TV. And it's like this big joke like somehow, oh, how terrible society would be if we would have male playboy bunnies or male flight attendants. They called them stewardesses back then. Those are going to be a few of the things they're going to say in the second wave of feminism. We don't want to change society. We want female playboy bunnies and female stewardesses. My favorite response is from a Philadelphia newspaper. 
and the Philadelphia Ledger and Daily Telegraph, because it makes so clear that point that somehow your desire for equality of rights under the law and equality of citizenship according to the Constitution, somehow you're not a woman. You don't, I guess you don't wear lipstick. You don't like men. You don't want to have babies, all of which is ridiculous, but is the same kind of thing that they say about modern feminists. Oh, they hate men. They eat children, witches, bitches. Ugh. No, this <laughs> that's ridiculous. But yet that word feminist and, you know, women wanting, quote, equality of rights. Why is that so threatening? Anyway, here's what the Philadelphia Ledger guy says. This one is, you're going to love this. Our Philadelphia ladies not only possess beauty, but they are celebrated for discretion, modesty, and unfeigned diffidence, as well as wit, vivacity, and good nature. Who ever heard of a Philadelphia lady setting up for a reformer or standing out for women's rights or assisting to man the election grounds? raise a regiment, command a legion, or address a jury. Our ladies glow with a higher ambition. They soar to rule the hearts of their worshipers and secure obedience by the scepter of affection. Wow, listen to that. They achieve obedience from men by being affectionate to them. So really, we're not the ones that have to worry about obeying. We use our affection and then we get man, <clears throat> men to obey us. And who really wants to, you know, talk in front of a jury or, you know, command a legion? Women won't want, don't want to do that, <laughs> said no woman ever. The tenure of their power is a law of nature, not a law of man. And hence, they fear no insurrection and never experience the shock of a revolution in their dominions. So there, again, it's the law of nature that makes these women full of wit, vivacity, and good nature. All women are not as reasonable as our women of Philadelphia, he goes on. The Boston ladies contend for the rights of women. The New York girls aspire to mount the rostrum. That's get in front of a podium and give a speech. To do all the voting, and we suppose all the fighting too. Our Philadelphia girls object to fighting and to holding office. They prefer the baby jumper to the stody of Coke and Littleton. Those are famous jurists. And the ballroom to the Palo Alto battle. They object to having a Georges Sand for president. That was an author, a European author, who dressed as a man and used a man's name. For president of the United States, a Fanny Wright for mayor, uh, or they, he names other women uh, uh, for governor. Women have enough influence over human affairs without being politicians. Is not everything managed by female influence? Mothers, grandmothers, aunts, and sweethearts manage everything. Man have nothing to do but listen and obey to the court to, of course, my dear, you will, and of course, my dear, you won't. Their rule is absolute, their power unbounded. Under such a system, men have no claim to rights, especially equal rights. So essentially, women, we're totally, we totally manage everything. And we've managed things to the point where we have no legal existence, no right to divorce our husband, even if he beats us, no right to our property, and no right to participate in civic life. Yeah, we manage that because that's what we want. Okay, here's the clincher. This is the last sentence. A woman is nobody. A wife is everything. A pretty girl is equal to 10,000 men. And a mother is 
next to God, all-powerful. The women of Philadelphia, therefore, under the influence of the most serious, sober second thoughts, are resolved to maintain their rights as wives, bells, virgins, and mothers, and not as women. Wow! Wow, wow, wow. That one, uh, you, you know, like I said, I've heard these um, so many times. I've read them over and over again. And I am stunned because, uh, and why should I? I'm not stunned. I am just, it's hard when it's in black and white. And they completely ignore the reality of women's lives that was laid out so carefully in the Declaration of Sentiments and in Elizabeth Cady Stanton's speech. They go on to make women feel like if somehow you want something different than what your social, legal, economic, and religious existence is, then somehow you're not what's important. A wife is everything. A pretty girl equal to 10,000 men and a mother next to God is all-powerful. So without being a wife and mother or pretty girl, you really have nothing and you're nobody. And if so, if you don't embrace those things, then clearly you are trying to do great damage to society. And that is, in fact, what they continue to say about feminists today and certainly in the second wave. I want to conclude with one note about the year 1848. 1848 is a year of revolutions across the Western world in the sense that Berlin, Prague, Paris all had revolutions rekindling some of the ideals of the French Revolution, liberty and rights and the franchise and all these things that were promised by the French Revolution and never delivered. So it is really telling that this Women's Rights Convention was held in this same year of all these other revolutions. Now, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is going to reply. In answer to all the newspaper objections, she wrote an article in the National Reformer, which was published in September of 1848. And she reiterates a lot of what she said in the speech and what is in the Declaration of Sentiments. And she tells them, for those who do not yet understand the real objects of our recent conventions, I would state that we did not need to discuss fashion, custom, or dress, the rights or duties of ban, nor the propriety of the sexes changing positions, but simply our own inalienable rights, our duties, our true sphere. If God has assigned a sphere to man and one to woman, we claim the right to judge for ourselves of his design and reference to us, and we accord to man the same privilege. So, look, men, you decided what you thought God said was your sphere, but you also happened to decide for God what our sphere was, and you don't get to do that. Moreover, we just want to talk about, what is that in the Declaration of Independence? Our inalienable rights. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And none of those responses to the conventions talked about those at all. All they talked about was not being the pretty little woman, obedient wife and mommy who wears pretty clothes and smiles and doesn't disobey and is perfectly happy in that position. And that may have been true for some women, 
but it wasn't true for all women, and it certainly wasn't true for the women in Seneca Falls, for Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and her new friend, who she will meet right after Seneca Falls, Susan B. Anthony. And the two of them will continue the fight after the Civil War. And that's what I will talk about next time, the post-Seneca Falls period and the civil rights amendments to the Constitution that came out of the Civil War. Thank you for joining me. That's it for this episode. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, You Are Your Uterus, A History, and I invite you to get in touch with me. Please go to my Facebook page, Dr. Victoria Della Torre, and please leave any comments or suggestions that you might have, or feel free to email me at drvdlt at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. This has been a production of the Yali Christina Company.